equals spin The propaganda's win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now This made with good intentions Welcome to 1 of 200 We've got another midweek episode for you Hoping to talk today a little bit about the idea of an independent New Zealand foreign policy. We don't often get to have these conversations in New Zealand media uh, or in New Zealand politics. It all gets swept away. Uh, and especially as we're coming into campaign season uh, with the polycrisis on the horizon and so much geopolitical noise occurring, I think it's really important to be talking about it uh, before both major parties uh, get dressed up in uh, army fatigues uh, for their strongman uh, photo ops. I've got Bronco here uh, with me as a co-host today. How's it going over in the States, Bronco? Uh, great. Fantastic. It's a, it's a beautiful summer's day in Chicago here. Fantastic, indeed. And uh, first time guest to the podcast, uh, we've got Van Jackson. Welcome to. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. This is fun already. <laughs> the pre-recorded conversation we had was uh, a blast. <laughs> Hey, look, we, we like to start start it out wild. Uh, do you want to give our listeners a, a little intro on kind of where you're coming from um, and what you do? Yeah, so I'm an international relations scholar at Victoria University of Wellington. I'm based in Wellington, New Zealand. You can tell from my accent, I'm American. And I come originally from the Washington, D.C. swamp. Like, I'm I'm an original OG blob creature. Um, so like I owe my career to the national security state. Initially, I was a liberal primacist. I worked as a defense strategist in Obama's Pentagon. I have top of the line street cred as a liberal primacist. I've published shit that defends liberal primacy. So what am I doing here? Well, in the past six years, I've had a massive reorientation. I've had a large change of heart I've started to understand the root causes of global insecurity, and I found myself on the left increasingly, um, and I saw commonality between Trump and a kind of like liberal vital center politics on the, the center and the right. And there was so much commonality, despite so much hashtag resistance to Trump, I started realizing like, oh, shit, I've been on the wrong side with some of these things. Um, and so I had this come to Jesus period during the Trump years and like the big Black Lives Matter year. And my research is sort of reoriented and retooled as part of that too. So now I've emerged as like this, I mean, I've been called a dissident foreign policy intellectual and like that is not wrong. Um, but so that's, I'm like, a, I'm a very strange bird in that respect particularly because i feel like uh for, for so much of the um let's say other foreign policy intellectuals even even part of the public and not just in the us but even even in new zealand it's been the opposite uh, i feel like people especially with biden having come into office and kind of adopted so much of trump's foreign policy uh people have, have kind of done uh, the reverse of what you did and, and now are kind of without realizing it maybe uh, are actually saying oh actually what trump was doing was was good that, that was that was right yeah they, they, it's so weird like during the trump years there was this window of time where my whole like social network which is all you know pmc technocrat you know liberal functionaries basically they all have million dollar mortgages in washington dc and send their kids to private school um those people 
were like left curious in the first couple years of Trump. And this the second, the second that fucking, you know, Bernie got Buttigieg in what was it, early 2020, they all just fucking f- went hard right, basically. I mean, as a foreign policy truth, they've gone far right. Um, mm. in, in domestic politics, it's much more complicated. There's like elements of progressivism there, but uh, it's largely in service to this like primacist foreign policy agenda. So um, it's just weird because like things were very unsettled in the Trump years and then they've broken in a direction that really just is a continuation of Trump in a lot of disturbing ways, you know? I mean, I'll just say very quickly before we get into it, uh, one of my favorite examples of this is uh, just before Trump came into office, or late, uh, I think it was October 2016, he made a phone call to the Taiwanese president. At the time, you can look it up, you know, do your, uh, uh, you know, set the date on your Google search for, you know, uh, uh, between June and, and December 2016, and look up what the, the media response was. And it was apoplectic, you know, Trump, and, and they were correct, you know, Trump was doing this very destabilizing thing. Um, he was going massively against long-standing protocols in U.S. policy. It, w- it could provoke a dangerous reaction from China, so on and so forth. All true. Um, then, four, or well, you know, four, five, six years later, um, Biden comes in and starts doing things that are even more provocative than that. Not just Biden, but Nancy Pelosi and others. And suddenly, there's not a word of um, objection. And and if there is, you're liable to sort of get. Uh, called a, yeah, tanky or, uh, you know, an apologist for dictators and so on and so forth. So, I mean, that's, that to me is just such a, um, a, a good illustration of how things have shifted in a kind of inexplicable way. Well, did you remember in the Trump years, that it's real quick, like we, we used to call what Trump was doing against China a trade war. Right. Mm. And it was arbitrary and problematic, et cetera, et cetera. But we used to call it a trade war. Everybody called it a trade war. They were critical when they were saying that Biden has kept all those tariffs in place, all of them, and added way more and added blacklists and export control restrictions and this like deliberate techno containment industrial policy and more and more and more. And we don't call it a trade war anymore. <laughs> ben, can you quickly uh, give us uh, just a quick uh, rundown of what you mean by liberal primacy uh, for our audience? Yeah, so in uh, foreign policy, liberal internationalism is like broadly how people would characterize U.S. foreign policy and U.S. grand strategy. So like the over the underlying logic of the foreign policy, there's different like categories of what those grand strategies are. Um, one is primacy, which is is pure domination to establish preeminence in every domain of life, right? Political, economic, military, strategic, right? Um, And that's an actual direct statement aspiration explicitly in U.S. strategy documents. Um, There there was an NSC document declassified in the Trump years that laid out like Indo-Pacific strategic framework or whatever. We defined our own vital interests in that document as primacy and then we defined primacy as preeminence in like every domain of life it's not it's not up for question occasionally democrats refer to it as things like euphemistic like leadership or whatever but they're talking about seeking imbalances of power across ways of living you know so that's primacy but it's it's liberal because it's not pure power 
right? So there's an alternative grand strategy that's called like neoliberal institutionalism and it it or um, liberal hegemony. And so it's relying on international institutions as mechanisms that mediate the power of the dominant player. So like America can be the hegemon, but it exercises its supreme power through institutions that give other states, elites, like some measure of like, there's a way to contest this a little bit, you know, it's a rigged game, but like you can have some contestation, um, power is filtered in a sense, you know, and that that is the logic of like international institutionalism. Those are liberal attributes. And so liberal primacy is kind of my term of art for the like objective reality that merges those two grand strategies, which is it is primacist by its own definition, but it engages with liberal rhetoric on the top of it. And it does it does embrace certain liberal features, certain liberal logics like international institutions. It just puts those institutions to work on behalf of like primacist goals still. So it's like this hot, so it's liberal, but that don't mean it's good uh, and it's primacist. It's ironic, but necessary that like, any conversation about independent foreign policy, uh, and I guess in the Western world, really, needs to start with this analysis of US uh, hegemony. In, in the New Zealand- What is independent? Com- what does it mean? Yeah, no, exactly. How, how do we even, you know, the, the word is thrown around a lot uh, mm-hmm. and also given a lot of lip service, especially by our, our Minister of Foreign Affairs and our Prime Minister, um, but without much in the way of evidence for that um, or implementation or outcomes around that either. Probably one of the biggest shifts uh, for, for those who've been watching is this. And it's just, it seems like it's just a language change, uh, but it's a strategic change from talking about the Asia Pacific to talking about the Indo Pacific, and some of the new alliances or organisations that have begun to show up around that. As a and, and either of you just just feel free to weigh in at any point on this. But from a kind of analyst point of view, when did that shift start to happen, and how much should New Zealand politicians and I guess the Ministry Ministry of Foreign Affairs um, and people working in this space be on top of that to ensure uh, some kind of New Zealand independence. And again, what what does independence even mean in that context? Uh, I mean, you know, I, I feel like I might be wrong about this. You can correct me, but I feel like it started in the Obama administration. I feel like that's when we started hearing a lot more about the the Indo Pacific. And um, yeah. you know, I might I, again, my sense is that's when there was a lot more kind of. Uh, uh, attempt to court India as part of the, the whole pivot to Asia uh, uh, move. And then, I mean, we're talking today, I mean, uh, Biden just met with uh, with, with Modi. Um, uh, I mean, one of the things for me that I always think about is just how much this goal of US primacy, uh, you know, rather than seeking a, a kind of, you know, a, 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 a atmosphere of stability and, and, and peace, but trying to hang on to sort of global dominion uh, uh, it ends up uh, undermining, you know, U.S. moral authority, uh, the rhetoric of U.S. leaders, um, and and you know, working against uh, U.S. Ge- geopolitical interests. I feel like we've seen that with the way that a lot of countries have rejected um, the U.S. Uh, approach to, to the Ukraine war. And I, I mean, I think you know, the meeting for, with Modi is one example of that. I mean, I think the U.S. Uh, friendliness with Saudi Arabia has played a role in that, but it it. it as well, but these kinds of things always end up 
basically giving the lie to, you know, the, the kind of the most flowery and kind of uh, uh, best intentioned rhetoric of leaders, uh, you know, with, it's all about, you know, um, defending democracy and defending the rules-based order and so on and so forth. But in the end, if you want to be able to not just be the big dog in your backyard, but be the big dog in the entire uh, uh, globe, you have to get into bed with people who um, uh, do not share liberal Western values. And that can be very awkward. So I mean, that's, that's sort of, you know, when, when you bring that up, that's, that's what you know, comes to mind for me. Well said. Yeah. The India thing is particularly a travesty because like the, the, the logic that's put forward for like, why do we fall all over ourselves to court India? Why do we sell them predator drones and like, you know, cooperate with them on the very, you know, advanced technologies that we deny to China that we're like seeking to prevent China from getting, but we want India to get them. What, what the fuck, you know, um, in the midst of rising Hindu fascism under Modi, he is emblematic of like a larger global far right trend that we're, we make worse by doing his laundry and state dinners and like joint addresses to Congress and stuff plus the defense relationship and the idea that it's like, well, them's the breaks. Geopolitics is a dirty business. I would be willing to look hard at that argument if it passed the laugh test, but like, we're not getting anything out of this. We have America's got this like strategic, I mean, I'm, I was part of this world, right? Like we have this strategic imagination where we assign India like special pride of place for a couple decades now, like back to the Bush era, even be like we think of india as a natural we use this language it's a natural strategic counterweight to china why do we think that well because some racist imperialists 150 years ago came up with this thing called geopolitics where we try to like deduce the truth of the world and how it works from staring real hard at a fucking map and it turns out that india looks real big on a map and it's next door to china on the map so we act like, oh, well, therefore, it's a natural strategic counterweight. What does that mean, though? Like, how does selling them armed drones, how does that change their behavior? What do we, what is, what does, you know, democracy get out of that? What does even America narrowly get out of that? It can't even get India to vote the way it wants on, like, Russia. So, like, what, what are you doing? India is going to naturally balance China because they have a territorial conflict, they don't need our help, you know? So like, why are we spreading or expanding China rivalry to the Indian Ocean region? Like, what the fuck? Like, that's geopolitical nonsense. Like, C. Wright Mills called that crackpot realism. But it's like, it's the veneer of like having serious, hard-nosed calculations. You're, 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 you're trading values to get interests, but like, no, you're using the word interests, but you're describing bad decisions and like dark hearted values, you know, and that's a fucked up. We're making a bad trade on our own terms, basically, you know? Mm. So I guess that's the, that's separate from New Zealand. <laughs> well, I mean, to, uh, just go to something you touched on, you know, you, you've mentioned several times that you were in this world um, and, you know, the relevance of this for New Zealand, I mean, I think in New Zealand, we have a very understandable cultural affinity uh, for America and for Americans, of course, mm -hmm. you know, it, it makes complete sense. Um, and, and for the American people. 
But sometimes I feel like that gets kind of um, in the minds of people, it gets blurred with the idea that because we have an affinity with American culture, American society, that that means we also um, need to have an affinity or need to follow um, the dictates of, of you know, uh, American elites. American yeah, culture. shared values does a far more work than it should, right? Right. And those two things are very different. I mean, the, 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 the political and economic elite of a country are not synonymous with... Um, it's people necessarily, they don't have the same interests. I mean, <laughs> Lord knows they don't have the same interests. That's why uh, Congress is so widely hated in yeah. the United States. Um, but but we are sort of, we have kind of led ourselves into this position where we, where we say, okay, well, we, we identify with the, the, you know, the American elite, whether it's the political elite or it's the intellectual class. And so we need to do what, what they're doing because they have our interests at heart. But what I, what I want to ask you is, you know, having been part of that world, um, what exactly is driving um, uh, people, you know, the, the, the people who design these, these policies of privacy? Uh, is it cynical? I think a lot of people on the left would say, oh, yes, of course, you know, Biden and the rest, they use these rhetoric about democracy and liberal values and so on and mm -hmm. so forth, because it's a way to dress up much more sinister power-hungry motives. Is that the case? Is it is it actually that they honestly believe these things that they say? If so, how do they reconcile that with the just mountains of contradictions that exist between U.S. rhetoric and, and, and policy? I'm, I'm curious to hear. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit. Most people are are true believers on some level, but they they adapt they adapt that to their their personal circumstances and what benefits them. They find a way to make their personal interests work with their sort of ideal ambitions. And so one of the ways that that, that happens is um, like, there are some pretty griftery cynical people too, but um, the, the way this works is usually like, especially like people who wake up every day and go to the Pentagon or something or go to foggy bottom or the white house they think they believe that American primacy is a kind of global public good. They believe, like jo John Mearsheimer, John Mearsheimer called us Asia's pacifier. Um, Joe Joe Nye from Harvard called us um, Asia's oxygen. You know, which is to say that without our material supremacy, the rest of the world goes to shit. And so that means that like you're doing God's work by supporting a kind of imperial structure, you know, and that that is that gets you up in the morning and makes you feel like you have a reason to feel good about yourself, even as you're supporting structures and architectures that take security from others that create more insecurity in the world. Right. Um, and so that it's that that's the story we tell ourselves in a sense. Um, and the Trump years was for me a reckoning for most people. They were looking post war on terror, war on terror is effectively done. Like they, it, it, as a construct, it still goes on um, globally in practice, but as an intellectual architecture to support foreign policy, the war on terror was done by the time Trump came to power. And the question that we were casting about for in those latter Obama years was like, well, what is the next challenge that we can orient our power toward? Right. And there wasn't really any forthcoming except for uh, China, you know, um, and it wasn't 
it wasn't on the same level remotely as as Russia during the Cold War, but it was the best thing that we had. And frankly, the neocons that staffed Bush, they had planned to do this China strategic competition thing in the aughts. They were going to do this in the Bush era. It got side sidetracked or whatever because of the war on terror, because of 9-11. So it, that did, 9-11 didn't stop it from happening. It just delayed it 10 years. Um, and so the this had been cooking in the national security world that like China's going to be the organizing paradigm for us as a as a strategic challenge. And in the Trump years, for like if you're a foreign policy Mandarin, like a technocrat or whatever, how are you going to spend your time doing what? You know, you got black kids getting murdered by cops on the street. You have what you you claim as a fascist in power in your own country. And all you know is about how to do foreign military sales. All you know is how to have diplomatic meetings and write cables, right? So where do you find your purpose? You take your knowledge of selling weapons and you take your knowledge of writing talking points for the ruling class and you orient them toward a big bad. And that can you can, you literally can't do it toward the big bad in your own country. That doesn't make any sense. So you do it toward the only other big bad that exists, which is China, which is a long way of saying focusing on China is the politics of liberal deflection from the problems in the world that we are complicit in. America is not the root of all evil, I don't believe, but its hands are not clean from a lot of the evils that are out there including some of the problems that we have with China, which are very real, but which dealing with them requires like looking in a mirror and reflecting on like how its behavior reflects our own or how it sits within a system that we've created to benefit ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but like nobody wants to do that reflective work. So we just end up in this like, well, China bad. Right. And also, I mean, of course, uh, deeply uh, complicit and, and, and uh, to blame for the, the many domestic crises in the United States that are uh, they've gone addressed. And to me, you know, there are far bigger security concerns for actually talking about the welfare of, of ordinary Americans, far bigger than, you know, what, what China's doing, as, as much as we may not like what it's doing to, you know, its own people and so on and so forth. Um, just to stay on this topic very quickly, um, and I think, again, this is relevant for Kiwis because if, if we're going to make this conscious choice to sort of hitch ourselves to US foreign policy, maybe we need to know a little bit about the way that the people who run that foreign policy are thinking. Um, I was floored um, reading this piece uh, in Harper's, I don't know if you read it, about the, the, the war in Ukraine, US policy. It was, I think it came out a month or so ago. Um, it it uh, quotes this uh, Pentagon contractor, I think it was an analyst who goes in and consults and advises, um, you know, whether it was the Pentagon or State Department, it's, you know, but but basically, you know, yeah, whatever. US policy. Um, and uh, he says, you know, at one point he brings up the fact that, you know, well, look, we have to think about from Russia's point of view, right? If China or Russia made a military alliance with Mexico, uh, how would we react? Of course, there's a very standard, um, widely used analogy um, that, that's not something mind-blowing. But according to him, uh, the response from these uh, uh, policymakers, these policymakers he was talking to, the, the response was, oh, wow. Yeah, wow. we never thought about it that way. Um, which was 
incredible to me on, on multiple levels but you know the most shocking thing is that it just suggests a a real lack of that that another word that gets used a lot now strategic empathy which to me is something pretty essential if you are someone designing foreign policy and trying to figure out how to navigate the choppy waters of an anarchic world um it, it seems to me like you should inherently be able to put yourself in the shoes of, of another uh, uh, country, particularly a powerful one, um, if you're working in this field. And yeah, it does not seem to have been happening. I mean, what was your sense? Is this, is this as shocking to you? Uh, or, you know, having worked in that, uh, in that space, uh, it sounds about right. Or, or did you have a different experience? I mean, the reason I, I kind of speak out so vocally as like a public critic against the going concern against sort of this the status quo foreign policy is because uh, I I think that there is some degree of response by the Biden administration at least there's some degree of responsiveness right they're willing to do the kind of passive revolution thing of like folding in select grievances and adapting on the margins the, oh, you're not going to like revolutionize their they're not going to do they're not that kind of actor you know but in a very pragmatic way. They're willing to hear alternative perspectives and change and update, update not their sense of place in the world, but update things on the margins. And so that means it's like it's worth trying to get new information and new reframing in front of them, you know. Um, so that's like a worthwhile project. The the thing that hinders all of it is American exceptionalism, which they've they overtly embrace. They think it's a virtue. It's where this whole primacy equals public good formula comes from. Problematically, though, it leads to the kind of blind spot that you're talking about, Bronco. Like, if you embrace American exceptionalism, you literally your your starting point and ending point must be that America can't be blamed for problems, even though it's the dominant power who claims to be like global hegemon. In what world does the global hegemon not have any responsibility for things that happen in this place called the globe? Like, what the fuck? What, the math doesn't like it's it's ridiculous, you know. But like American exceptionalism means that you have to like extricate America or exculpate America from these calculations of like cause and effect in the world, which means that like when China does something bad, well, a reasonable analyst might question whether the thing they're doing that's bad is in response to something we have done or in response to their perceptions of us, right? And then that would lead us to maybe tinker with our own policies because, well, clearly they're reacting in a way we don't like, so maybe we ought to adjust, right? That's a sane person. An exceptionalist does not do that because they can't take that cause and effect part where America is culpable. They've got to remove that from the equation, which leaves us with like, China's bad and it's mysterious <laughs> why <laughs> and <laughs> therefore it's really fucking scary because we don't even have a good explanation for it other than good versus evil you know mm. and that's what exceptionalism sets up and mm. that's deep that's deep in the like the belief you know yeah i mean you know i i don't claim to know what exactly you know is going through the minds of the chinese elite but i do feel like in in u.s foreign policy discourse and i think in in new zealand's and every other western country's obviously we, we take our cues from what's happening in the u.s 
the assumption is that whatever China is doing, whatever it's planning, it, it is inevitably going to be the exact same thing that, that, that US policymakers are doing. That, that, you know, the Chinese think the exact same way and they have the exact same goals. They also want to be global hegemons. They also want to basically have free reign to meddle in other countries' politics, topple governments they don't like, launch foreign wars um, without any check and so on and so forth. I think that's the assumption. I mean, what would you say? To, to what extent is this is this true? Or to what extent do we do we really uh, uh, know that it's true? And uh, regardless, should we be uh, sort of uh, acting in a way that assumes that this is an inevitability? Yeah, it's 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 an open question whether China seeks global hegemony or you know even regional hegemony. That's something that's like actively debated and there's not a consensus about it. And a lot of the debate falls down on questions of like, well, what do we mean by hegemony? I mean, like, it's like even scholars, the, the term is fuzzy. Like, what are you referring to precisely? Um, and the fear is most definitely that like China will behave as we have. And that is a terrifying prospect to us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> rightly and that might be true like i don't want to discount that possibility that they they would seek to do that but the reality of the world system at our like historical moment that we're in is that like china's power is dependent on its position within a world system where we have pride of place effectively like they depend structurally and i think that i think that the ccp understands this they depend structurally on us, right? In a very literal sense, like holding all of our treasury bonds and shit, but also in the like practical, where do you send your finished goods for exports? Well, the American market, right? And those those interdependencies are very real through firms like Apple, you know? You, there's, you, you can't break that without breaking the world. Um, mm. And it the thing I worry about is that America is actually trying to break that and they're trying to like baby step us into that. But for now, yeah, like China and like, even if China had the global hegemon ambitions, Asia itself is not conquerable, let alone the world. Like there's too many diverse actors. There's too many power mm. centers. America could be like really relaxed and passive and Asia would still be unconquerable because you'd still have, the Australians freaking out and the Japanese freaking out and, you know, like everybody's building up their own military capabilities anyway. Mm. So like, we, we don't need to do much, you know? Mm. Yeah. I mean, well, I think it's also worth mentioning that, you know, for what this is worth, John Michano, who is a China hawk, I think he yeah. responded to that, that question by saying, you know, I, I don't think that the, that the Chinese want to act the way that we have acted, which mm -hmm. is interesting. So even, even, I mean, you know, it doesn't mean that that's, the case so that it will always remain the case if it is true but it's interesting that even a guy who um very much wants to confront china thinks that if they became kind of the leading power in the globe they would not do the thing that, that uh, the u.s did post-cold war i mean it's... anything that's debatable though should not be this the operating assumption of your foreign policy i mean like mm, what that's true. <laughs> automatically <laughs> that's, you know it's an extremely good point <laughs> so we've got this kind of ongoing ideology i guess just broadly um, that New Zealand has had to mostly passively interact with. Uh, so generally uh, talking about uh, 
shared values, uh, rules-based order kind of stuff when it comes to foreign policy, uh, adding our light military support in the in the way of engineers or some arms funding or more often aid funding uh, for countries that the US uh, and the kind of broader Western uh, hegemony chooses as uh, recipients of that. But in the last few years, we've seen this uptick, more direct, I'm not even sure what to call it, just more direct, I'd say meddling um, in, in Pacific affairs uh, from the US. I'm, I'm thinking in particular about uh, the situation in the Solomons, mm-hmm. um, which seemed to require more of a hands-on response uh, from our Minister of Foreign Affairs, or at least it, it should kind of trigger that. So far, uh, a lot alongside that kind of stuff and, and the war in Ukraine, it, we've continued to follow suit. But as the theatre kind of moves more into the Pacific, uh, which is, is looking clearer and clearer that it is going to be, it behooves us to think about our position there and especially our relationship with China. How should we be approaching that? And specifically, how do we uncouple ourselves the, the US lines on that, uh, given our, I guess, reliance um, on them to lead us. I mean, this is why it matters that the underlying concept of New Zealand foreign policy is a rhetorical slogan whose meaning is completely opaque, right? Or like it means nothing to say independent foreign policy. And so like there's a you could appropriate that rhetoric to serve like really good purposes, possibly, if by independence you meant strategic non-alignment, if you meant preserving the autonomy autonomy of smaller states in, for example, the Pacific from encroachment by great powers, you know, like if it meant challenging spheres of influence, no matter where they exist, including when it's America's spheres of influence, right? Or Russia's or China, you know, like if you had like, there's no, there's no strategic compass or moral compass to New Zealand's foreign policy. It's it's really trying to like tread water in an mm. in a in the middle of a shitstorm, you know. <laughs> and so like there needs to be operating principles and the old pillars of like what is it, what is it? Um good global citizen, small trading nation, like those pillars I think are still implicit in New Zealand foreign policy, but like we live in a world now where like those those two mean whatever you want them to mean. Like, what does it mean to be a good global citizen when the global hegemon is like the most unreliable actor, right? Mm. Small trading nation. It makes sense that Chris Hipkins would go to China like that to, to, you know, kiss the ring or whatever and preserve those economic ties. But like, you're just reacting to things as they happen. And so when you see great power encroachment on the Pacific, that doesn't... you don't have a framework to put that within to figure out what to do. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the disconcerting things about watching the the war in Ukraine uh, is that preceding the invasion, obviously there's there's so much history there. But I think it's fair to say, and this does not obviously justify the horrible illegal war that's being waged against it, but um, the, the Ukrainian political leadership, successive leadership of a, of a number of administrations, I don't think really managed the very particular and special status that that Ukraine had as this kind of bridge between East and West, between uh, uh, Europe and, and you know NATO and and Russia, um, and sort of 
you know, obviously was also pushed and pulled in, in particular directions and had to react to that. But ultimately that, that kind of led to not only the country splitting, but, but it really being, um, you know, uh, uh, well, to, to quote Bishan, erect. Um, now, I don't think New Zealand is going to uh, get invaded by China or the United States uh, anytime soon. But uh, to me, there's a similar, there's, there's an analogous thing going on, you know, um, in the same way that, that Ukraine was kind of torn between its economic ties to Russia, which are really important, um, and its kind of cultural and political affinity that had developed uh, with the West. Um, I feel like New Zealand's in a similar position. We have this uh, uh, cultural affinity for, for the United States. We have this kind of these political ties um, and, and, you know, to some extent, military ties, of course, as well. Um, but at the same time, I mean, China is by far our biggest trading partner. Um, yeah. That is a hugely important thing to the country's security and well-being. Um, and, I mean, to me, uh, the lesson of this war, I mean, there are many lessons, but, but the, it, one of the lessons is the importance of really managing, you know, if you are a small power, small country caught between two uh, uh, very large powers uh, of, of not, you know, casting all your chips uh, or putting all your eggs in one basket of trying to somehow manage that relationship. I mean, I don't know. What, what do you think? Am I, am I out of line or am I, am I being a little foolish here? What, what do you think? No, that's the, so like the way I've put it is that like New Zealand shares similar interests with other smaller powers in Asia and in the Pacific and the strategy that they have all self con self consciously adopted is, um, you know, the Hard Rock Cafe slogan "Love all, serve all," right? That's their strategic posture. It's friend to all, enemy to none, right? New Zealand has has refused to uh, embrace that with the same overt fervor and insistence that the other powers have. But that's what best serves New Zealand's interests is to to side with that. Which is to say, like, you don't want to be seen as choosing sides because choosing sides either way heightens rivalry and rivalry heightens instability. And a small trading nation needs stability above all else. Otherwise, it is ripped apart and we're fucked and we have no economy, et cetera, et cetera. So, like, if you're working backwards from what, you know, New Zealand's place in the world, stability first. Stability means taking the foot off the gas of rivalry, like, you know, pumping the brakes, what would Jesus do? You know, we need a version of that where it's like, no matter what the question is on foreign policy, the first principle question has got to be something about if we make this decision, does it heighten the forces of rivalry between great powers or does it ameliorate it? And it's like, that's got to be the first order question for a state whose existence depends on stability, you know? Like my fear is that we're we're gonna like end up in another Gallipoli where the mm. men and women of this fucking country die cannon fodder for a stupid fucking reason. And it's it's mystified by things like rules-based orders. Like we're all we have to contribute is our bodies, right? Because we're not mm. a first class military power or whatever, but we can put heads on the on the chopping block. We can sacrifice, yeah. but to what end, you know, like that doesn't serve anyone's purposes. So mm. like, we've got to, we've got to prevent ourselves from getting into that situation. And that means finding ways to do the love all, serve all thing, finding ways mm. to like not antagonize others. And that include, I mean, like, I'm not trying to, I think 
New Zealand and the US have a lot in there's there's close ties there in many ways but that like d- embracing those ties while distancing yourself from the economic hegemon in Asia which is China is a, a recipe for heightening instability like you don't mm. want that so like i the short answer is i think you're right well, that's great to hear. Uh, I always like being told I'm right. No, I mean, you, you mentioned the rules-based uh, order. And, and, you know, one of the, the, the things, one of the, the, the factors that get cited for why we should do exactly what you're saying we, we shouldn't do, um, because I often think, you know, what, what is it as driving, what is in U.S. interests, uh, sorry, what is in New Zealand interests, I'm sorry, to, to um, uh, go with the United States and sort of just kind of, you know, follow along no matter what, and, you know, I'll read some IR scholars and commentators in New Zealand. And the thing they always say is, well, it's about protecting the rules-based order. You know, we need to, China has to be confronted to protect this rules-based order. Um, but I mean, number one, uh, does aligning ourselves, you know, unquestionably, unquestioningly with US foreign policy, does that actually protect the US, uh, the, the, the rules-based order, number one. And if not, what can New Zealand do to actually, you know, if this is going to be a core New Zealand interest that we're willing to, to put all manner of things in the line for, what can we actually do to shore up that order, to shore up the system of international law, to make this a more stable uh, a world with, with some kind of you know, uh, ground rules that, that guide us? Yeah. the Al- Alistair Ian Johnston, who's uh, like the premier China watcher, political scientist, uh, IR theorist at uh, at Harvard. He's been in residence for the past few months at Victoria University in Wellington. And he gave a big lecture um, a couple weeks ago, maybe. And in it, he was talking about the Sino-US security dilemma and uh, how it's being driven, driven by like false certainties of each about the other that are grounded in ethno-nationalism and exceptionalism. And this is what makes the the relationship such a powder keg, et cetera, et cetera. Within that construct that he set up in the lecture, he mentioned how like the rules-based international order doesn't exist the way that we talk about it. It's it's functionally differentiated. It's many things. There's not one singular order that is rules-based international order. And he said that the way, if you look at how it's used rhetorically in the in the US, especially, rules-based international order is a rhetorical construct that's meant to otherize China. It's it's only used in relation to excluding China. And this is actually in keeping with other research in IR about how great powers build international orders. It's always going back to like 1815, every version of international order, even the League of Nations, it was always about building an international order to deal with some perceived threat, which was sometimes it's an ideology, but a lot of times it's a specific state or a specific actor. And so like in in Ian Johnson's telling where we talk about rules-based international order because it's the dog whistle or whatever to talk about civilizational conflict with China. And that's laced with exceptionalism. That's laced with like romance, a romantic sheen on top of power politics, right? That's got tinges of racism baked into it that we don't want to acknowledge in polite society. So we dress it up. 
And so like mm-hmm. he he says that's what's going on. And I don't deny that. Yeah, I mean, and I guess the other thing is if we talk about the rules-based order, we're not talking about a system of international law and multilateralism uh, because, of course, the United States uh, government does not really abide by those. Um, and so, therefore, we it's just sort of nebulous rules. Um, I mean, you know, in, in many ways, there's, there's numerous examples where China, in fact, uh, you know, you can say abides by international law far more than the United States has. Doesn't mean that it's got it always, but but certainly at this uh, point. See, that's where you make the mistake. Um, the order and rules-based uh, international order is actually in the imperative sense. Just, uh, the, uh, not the structural sense. Three, yeah. <laughs> No, no, no. More like a, this is oh, what like an instruction. <laughs> well, that's the other thing. Like, it's one thing to want to preserve rules-based international order rhetorically because you take it as your substitute for stability. And like we just said, if you're a small state, stability first, right? But And lots of people refer yes, to it like that. Totally, right? that's the... totally. But the problem with that is that there's no evidence whatsoever in New Zealand foreign policy that it recognizes America's actively rewriting the rules of the international order in a way that's problematic for New Zealand's interests, which are deeply economic. I mean, like, mm. there's no growth prospect in a world. China, last year, China accounted for 18.2% of global GDP, right? More than any other nation, including the United States. The idea that you're going to techno contain them and actually try to sabotage their growth is a poison pill for global stability, for regional stability. This whole industrial policy thing, aspects of it have merit, but on, in the main, it's it's sucker punching the entire developmental economic model that states had been using in lieu of nationalism and territorial revanchism and all this shit, you know? We are a source of... Um- that's because of the Belt and Road. That's it's the Belt and Road doing some debt trapping. Um, that's causing <laughs> all these problems, Dan. I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, and of course, it's disastrous for New Zealand. I mean, if, if China's our largest trading partner, then it's very bad for us. If it's, uh, well, if it's if it's uh, economic growth is constrained, and also if it's, uh, you know, if there's a war or any other sort of um, uh, uh, disastrous thing that happens to it. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it reflects our security. I mean, whereas the United States, I mean, uh, I'm not sure what the exact figure is, but you know, New Zealand doesn't do that much trade with the United States. And also the United States is very, very, um, very much does not want our dairy products <laughs> inside of uh, competing, at least, you know, on an even playing field with its farmers. Um, yeah. And that's kind of our entire thing, uh, you know, Maybe if we if we did more to to, to try and transition our economy to, to something more sustainable, it wouldn't be. But as it is, you know, we got all our eggs in the uh, in the dairy basket. But that that never seems to get talked about. So it's a very narrow definition of security in New Zealand. Maybe actually that's that's the question I want to ask you, which is what what is your sense of the New Zealand um, foreign policy discussion, or you know the the, the kind of uh, talk we do about what exactly New Zealand interests and, and security are. Oh, it's it's not good. Um, <laughs> it's not advisable. It's like there's a, a heavy reliance. This is the case in Washington too, to an extent, but like dealing with buzzwords and neologisms, vacuous rhetoric it, as a substitute for thought, as a substitute for a driving concept or a bet or a wager with your choices, you know? The entire generation of like 
foreign policy architecture that exists in this country has grown up in an era of like neoliberal foreign policy. And so what's good for Fonterra is good for the nation. Sometimes that neo, I've been trying to grapple with this myself, but sometimes the neoliberals, like it wasn't all bad, right? Because it's like, well, this is an alternative to great power war or whatever, like to military Keynesianism. So like there was, there was an upside, there was a silver lining to the darkness of neoliberalism, that version of capitalism, which just consumes the social order that sustains it. And like, it's a, it's a nightmare that we don't need to rehash here, but it wasn't all bad. And the upshot of it was that, well, you're not going to antagonize another great power uh, if they're buying all your dairy, for example. Right. So there's some kind of silver lining in that, but that's also a kind of horrible arrangement because the nation's interests are not the same as Fonterra's. We know this is true. Anybody who buys dairy in New Zealand recognizes that the prices are suspiciously high for a country that produces so much dairy. (laughs) (laughs) And that's because of where it's all going, which ain't it's which is not into the dairies here. So, yeah, like the, the foreign policy conversation here reflects the unthinkingness of swimming in that ocean and not seeing the water of neoliberalism. Right. The conflation of trade policy as foreign policy. And like there were things worth salvaging in that. Um, But the first principle, which nobody's waking up to here, is that like rivalry is bad for life here. And we're not really questioning the rivalry paradigm or trying to push back on it or being on the right side of the balance sheet, the correct side of the balance sheet when we have to make foreign policy choices. We adopt rhetoric like Indo-Pacific, and then we do these cheeky little things where we like we define it in our own way. But Washington doesn't hear that. They hear they've got a checklist on their wall being like, well, did New Zealand say Indo-Pacific? Yep. Okay. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and we're like, but we mean inclusive. And nobody's hearing that. Even China's <laughs> not really hearing that, you know? So like, we're we're a little too reactive and in the worst case scenario as rivalry heightens and stability instability risks increase we end up in a situation where like we're getting backed into a gallipoli moment again mm. in the worst case you know um and so it's about finding ways to ameliorate rivalry or at least not making choices that heighten rivalry you know mm. i think we've got um just a little bit longer uh this episode so i wanted to ask what you're expecting van from the visit of new zealand prime minister chris hipkins to china next week what could be on the table there um what would you like to see uh come out of that i think it's you know it hasn't happened in a long time it's happening at a, at a really good time um I, I think it's it's a good idea for him to go, uh, be going to meet the the leadership there um, we we do know he's probably going to go and chat with NATO afterwards, uh, which is interesting as well. But yeah, what what do you think's on the table? Uh, probably nothing much. Um, my sense is that this is basically a trade junket, which is not unusual for New Zealand politicians going to China, right? Um, and that's just that's sane, irrational, pragmatic because like China is the central actor of economic life in this larger region. And that's also the case for New Zealand, you know? So like you have to sustain those ties. The more you can open market access in China, the better. 
um, at least for exports. Uh, I'm not sure how much New Zealand benefits when like China sends stuff our way. But um, I, I think that's the the full extent of it. They're not going to have any hard conversations. Hipkins is not a moralizer. He's not morally courageous as far as I can tell. <laughs> uh, so my hope is that he goes there and announces a big surge of funding for the New Zealand tertiary education system. But I doubt that that's where his head's going to be. It's more going to be, uh, you know, saying inclusive Indo-Pacific and like changing nothing. There's this real interesting... Um... I hesitate to call it a knee jerk. It's more just like a systematism, um, where whenever uh, New Zealand leadership is going over to one of these these countries that is seen as having different values to ours, they're asked, "Are you going to raise human rights concerns with them in um, private?" I think he said, uh, <laughs> "Yes, of course. I'll always have those hard discussions with our with our friends or something." In this case, um, yeah, that's a joke. I mean, that's like the bureaucrat speak for saying we didn't raise it, you know. <laughs> like- and of course, we know that China is the only only country that that of course has human rights uh, violations and, and concerns that we should bring up. There's there's no other. That's the other thing. Countries yeah. that we're friendly with uh, <laughs> never do anything bad. Yeah, yeah. Go to the U.S. and ask the State Department what they're doing about the global far right. You'll hear crickets. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, the migrants um, that are still being brutalized uh, under the Biden administration, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, you're absolutely right about what Hopkins is in China for. And the list of industry reps that he's taking with him is very indicative of that. How about when he's heading over to NATO um, in the subsequent week? The NATO thing is like, it's like identity politics for national security elites. Like NATO doesn't have any kind of functional geopolitical role in Asia. It's just got an existential angst about it justifying itself. And Ukraine has been a huge booster shot, of course. And so that really strengthens the arguments for its continued existence in that continent, way on the other side of the planet. But Asia, they know, is like the future of every, you know, geopolitical fever dream fantasy. And so like that's where the real action is for the, you know, military bean counter guys. And so NATO wants in on that in some way. But they don't have a conception for like what they're going to do because they can't muster and they can't project enough power in Asia to be a real balancer, you know, Um, and the the whiteness, the civilizational hue is like very problematic uh, for for this region. But I don't want to say it's like all bad necessarily, because if you could come up with an argument about how like all right, maybe like NATO is going to play a bigger role in Asia and, you know, Australia and Japan and these other countries are going to sort of collectively form whatever. And that's going to be how we segue America out of the era of primacy into something more stable, restrained, moderate. I can see, and that that ushers in a more formally multipolar world, right? There's an argument there, you know? We can debate it. There's risks in that calculation, but like you can that that's conceivable, you know? And so I don't want to rule out like, oh, NATO is pure evil or whatever. And it depends, you know? Mm-hmm. But the idea that America is doing primacy and then you add on top of that AUKUS and Quad and proliferating to allies and bringing in NATO, then it's like, okay, now you're doing the encirclement that China was saying you were doing 10 years ago when you weren't, but now you are. So like, what the fuck, man? Like, don't don't validate their priors, you know? Like, this. Are we going to see Chris Hipkins get into fatigues while he's over there? 
Is it PLA fatigues? Oh, at the NATO. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. Yeah. You meant NATO, but yeah, no. <laughs> we'll see how um, Labour's polling is looking uh, during that week and whether it needs a poll boost, I guess. Hey, that's been really good. Uh, thanks so much for joining us uh, today, Ben. It's, um, this was fun, guys. Yeah. Hey, come back on. Do it some more. Uh, sure. Always happy. Oh, and we're even trying to have more of these kind of longer conversations about specific issues uh, rather than just doing our, our weekly current events. So, uh, yeah, definitely we'll be asking you back. Uh, anything else that you wanted to quickly add, Bronco, while we're here? Oh, I so many, uh, there's so many things I could bring up, but I think uh, we've, we've already gone for an hour. Um, let's, let's save something for the next episode. All right. Yeah. And Ben, where can people <laughs> find you if they um, want to look at uh, your other work? Uh, I have a newsletter called Undiplomatic. Uh, it's un-diplomatic.com. I have a podcast called The Undiplomatic Podcast. Uh, and yeah, I'm a loud mouth on Twitter. So yeah. <laughs> Just like alive. the rest of us. <laughs> 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 All right. Hey, that's been another episode of One of 200. Thank you for joining us once again. Uh, if you've uh, found something useful in this, share it around. Uh, let people know what's happening out there um, at odds with the status quo understanding of our world uh, patreon link in the summary as usual uh, and give us a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you're using we'll catch you next time if offices are denied live in a pointless life but let in all your lessons fucking politics is no distinction the words are now it's paid with good intentions and I'll admit that I Lost the one to say when they quote this as a cop, he ought to stay. Cause I live amongst the people every day. And this vindictive, forgetful fucking rain.